When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello, podcast listeners. I'm Connor and welcome to this week's episode of Intelligence Squared. This week, we were joined by Isabel Wilkerson, author of the new book, Cast, The Lies That Divide Us. And she spoke to Yasmin Abdel-Majid for a live and online event on our new subscription service, Intelligence Squared Plus. And together they explored the themes of Isabel's book, looking at the unspoken systems of division which persist in our societies today. And a gentle reminder, if you do enjoy this podcast and want to take part in some of our upcoming events and ask your questions to the speakers, just go to intelligencesquared.com slash plus and subscribe today with a special 20% off discount using the code podcast. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T podcast. It's a great way to support Intelligence Squared and learn from some of the most brilliant minds. Now to this week's episode. I'm Yasmin Abdelmajid, and welcome to tonight's conversation on the hidden power of caste with my guest, the journalist and author, Isabel Wilkerson. Welcome, Isabel. Thank you for having me. And I am quite excited that this is your first UK event. So we'll start with the meaning of caste. And I guess what I want to know is why do you think caste, the concept and the book has hit such a nerve and had so much resonance in the United States? Well, that's such a great question. I mean, caste is a, is an ancient term. It's for an ancient uh, series of hierarchies. And in the American context, this is a book that's primarily about the American context for understanding hierarchy. And so in the context in which I am describing it, caste is an artificial, uh, arbitrary hierarchy, graded ranking of human value in which, uh, in a society in which so many aspects of a person's characteristics determine standing, respect, the benefit of the doubt accorded a person, access to resources or the denial of access to resources, assumptions of competence and intelligence and beauty even. So those are the, those are the aspects that 
a caste system in the context in which I'm using it for in understanding the American hierarchy exists. One other thing about caste is that these hierarchies, these embedded hierarchies exist in many, many forms, many, many societies. And so I'm focusing in primarily on the United States with, of course, a nod to Britain, which is, you know, the, the originating location that was so important in founding the United States. And then, but also looking toward other hierarchies to better understand what's happened in the United States. And one thing to note about caste is that any number of metrics could be used in establishing a caste system. Uh, one's lineage, religion, geography in the United States context and in the context of what came out of the transatlantic slave trade was the idea that the metric that was used was what people look like, their origins primarily. Say, for example, people who originated in Africa were transported to the New World to be enslaved and thus emerging thus a graded ranking of value with people who were the colonists in the dominant group and those who were enslaved at the very, very bottom of the hierarchy. It could have been any number of metrics, but that was a metric that was used and that we that uh, we live under the shadow of that metric to this day. So you use the lens of caste and casteism rather than the lens of racism. So can you tell us a little bit more about what caste tells us that maybe race doesn't? Yes, well, caste is a focus on the structure. I mean, I, I actually became quite fascinated with the the iterations of the term caste, however it might be spelled in the in the in English. And of course, caste originates from the uh, from the Portuguese word that refers also to race. So this, they're all interconnected. Um, so you think about the cast on an arm, you know, that you might put to hold the fractured bones in place. The idea of boundaries and holding people in a fixed location. And then you think about the cast in a play, people who are characters in a play and they are all assigned a play stage right, stage left, in the foreground, in the background, and everyone knows their place. They, everyone knows the script for, for, and the, the lines that they are to say. And in fact, if you really are invested in, in the, the play, then you know the entire script and you know what everyone is supposed to say and where everyone's supposed to be. And then when someone steps out of that place, then you kind of know, throws everything off because everyone has been trained to know where everyone fits. So I describe cast as the bones of this artificial infrastructure, of this invisible infrastructure. It's the bones. And then race in the iteration that I'm speaking about is the skin. So, uh, you know, cast is the bones and race is the skin. Race becomes the signifier of where one fits, where one is assigned in the artificial hierarchy that was ultimately created or grew out of the colonizing of the United States, what, what now become, is now the United States. And one of the, the points that you make, and you mentioned it just before, was the fact that it could be any signifier. And there was a great example that you used, a teacher's experiment in her class could you tell us a bit about that? Yeah. A third grade teacher in the Midwestern part of the United States in Iowa, she decided that she would do an experiment, which was ultimately an experiment in caste, experiment in hierarchy. What she did was she took the students, uh, third graders, so eight and not eight and nine years old, and all of the students, because of where it was in the United States, they were, it was an all white classroom, all, you know, predominantly white town, uh, in, in Iowa. And so she took the students and she decided that day that she was going to take an arbitrary physical trait and use that as a way to, to, to learn and to instruct the children on how, how artificial all of this is. So what she did was she chose, she said to the students, those of you who have brown eyes, students, children who have brown eyes are inferior. 
If you have brown eyes, brown eyed children, brown eyed people are not as smart. They are lazy. They don't work as hard. They're not as reliable. And so that means that the brown eyed students here in our class will no longer be able to get extra helpings at in the cafeteria at lunchtime. They will not be able to stay out as, as long in the playground. It's the blue-eyed children, she said, who are intelligent and they are reliable, they don't steal, they are good people, and therefore they will get to have additional helpings uh, at, at, uh, at uh, lunchtime. They will be able to stay out on the playground even longer. And it's very important to note that she said that the brown-eyed children will not be able to play with the blue-eyed children, that you cannot play with one another and the brown-eyed children have to come in early. And so she then, she told them this, this these were the, the new rules of how they were to interact. Now remember, these children had known each other all of their lives, and they all, you know, looked similar in many other respects, except for the color of their eyes. So she then told the children to now turn to their pay, to their book, open their books to a particular page in their, in their textbook. And one little girl was, took a little bit longer to find her page. And as she was looking for the page, someone said, someone, she said, you know, Lori, why can't you find the page. And another little boy in the classroom said, she's a brown eyed. She's a brown eyed. And that explains why. And I remember they had only minutes before thought of themselves as exactly the same. Once that that marker, once that signifier was then turned into meaning and a negative meaning for one and a positive meaning for other, the students instantly recognized that and a caste system formed. And then, you know, it, it, it continued in which that you could see the after effects of this arbitrary ranking that the children for the rest of the day, the children who had been told that they were inferior did not do as well in the classroom exercises, did not do as well in tests. And then one little child, one child, you know, was found to be crying and he, the teacher asked what it was that had happened. He said, well, someone, someone bullied me in the, in the schoolyard. Someone, someone insulted me in the schoolyard. And the teacher said, well, what is it that they said? He said, and the little boy said, they called me a brown-eyed. So that a natural human characteristic that should be neutral was instantaneously turned into something that was a negative, that was a slur even, instantaneously. And, and this is when you think about how quickly the children were able to pick up on the meaning of caste in this regard, the meaning of a hierarchy in this regard, you can see and begin to spread that out to begin to imagine how this affects people in entire societies over generations. Mm, it's incredible to recognize that even in children, when you start to add particular value and meaning to to arbitrary traits that has sort of real life tangible impacts. So let's let's turn to let's turn to the book. And one of the things that your book does and is quite unique in doing is looking at how caste plays out in different societies and you draw parallels with the American caste system and India and Nazi Germany. Talk about why you chose those two examples. Well, you know, I had written a book, the previous book, my first book was The Warmth of Other Sons, and it was about the out-migration of six million African Americans from the Jim Crow South to the rest of the United States, essentially a redistribution of an entire people that helped to create the cities that we know of, you know, Chicago and, and uh, Cleveland and Los Angeles and New York were all changed as a result of this great migration, which went on for much of the 20th century. And so in writing about that, I ended up having to spend a tremendous amount of time in an aspect of American history that a lot of people, even Americans, are not as familiar with. In other words, I was having to describe the world that they were defecting from, the world that they were fleeing. And that was a world that in that was so 
restricted and so hierarchical that it was actually against the law for a black person and a white person to merely play checkers together. That the, it was, this was a world in which in courtrooms throughout the South, there was actually a black Bible and an altogether separate white Bible for people to swear to tell the truth on in court. That means the very word of God, the sacred text could not be touched by hands of different races. And so as a result of that, and also as a result of the work that had been done by those that preceded me, the arc, the uh, anthropologists and sociologists who had gone to the Jim Crow South while this was in action in the 1930s and 40s, and they all emerged from their research with the word caste. So the word caste had been applied to the Jim Crow South in the United States uh, many decades before I began The Warmth of the Suns. And my own research led me to that word. So the word racism does not appear in The Warmth of the Suns. I use the word caste and, and, and caste system. And so in, in this, you know, once I realized that this was a book, the second book was a book that I was going to really need to write. This is not a book that I had planned you know, initially to write, but it was something that I felt called to do. I then realized that I was going to be writing about something so much more than just the United States. I needed to understand the origins uh, of, the, of our discontents, that which is a, a term that I use also for the book in, in the United States. And so, of course, that meant going to under, try to understand the best known, most easily recognizable caste system in, in, in the world, which would be India. And that was one of the first places that I knew I wanted to look and needed to research. But I also, you know, then in the midst of all of this, Charlottesville happened. And Charlottesville, Virginia, as, as um, perhaps people know, I think it became a a global awareness story is that that was where protesters were resisting and protesting the potential removal of a Confederate symbol, meaning the statue of Robert E. Lee, the Confederate general. And they were uh, resisting it and protesting it. And in their protests, the people were carrying symbols of the Confederacy which was this, the part of the South that was breaking from the rest of the United States during the Civil War. And they were also bringing in the symbolism of Nazi Germany. Both flags, both symbols were being brought together by the protesters there. And it, it was that, uh, that protest that also led to the, the tragic, shocking death of a, of a, of a white counter protester, peace protester in a horrific way uh, in that event. And so that brought me to the idea of looking at Germany, looking at Germany to try to understand how had they reckoned with their history? How had they atoned for, or begun the a work of atoning for what they had gone through during World War II? And all of that came together. So I ended up focusing in on those two uh, societies as a way of understanding hierarchy in, in the country that I'm from. There's a parallel that you draw through a story where Martin Luther King Jr. traveled to India and, and spoke with the Dalits there. I thought it was an incredible story, especially because it 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 almost forced Martin Luther King Jr. himself to to reckon with his own position in the United States. Yeah, such a great suggest such a great story you're making reference to. Thank you for bringing that up. In that case, in 1959, Martin Luther King made a historic visit to to India. His first trip there, of course, he had been inspired by the Indian independence movement and the nonviolent protest approach that that uh, Mohandas K Gandhi had taken and so he wanted to see to see India for himself he was greeted and received as a visiting dignitary and upon arrival he was recognized 
on the street. But during his trip, he made a trip to a Dalit school, a school that was uh, attended by uh, children who were then known as, as untouchables. And he, uh, upon arrival, the principal there introduced him to the students. And he said, young people, I would like to introduce you to a fellow untouchable from America. And the principal was very excited to make this connection, and, and that's how he introduced Dr. Martin Luther King. And when uh, Martin Luther King heard that introduction, it first landed a little oddly on his ear. He was not accustomed to thinking of himself way. He at first did not did not take that very well. He actually was a little bit peeved, actually, to be seen. He thought, thought to himself, you know, I've had dinner with the prime minister, and I've been treated as a visiting dignitary. And then he thought about it. He thought about the very work that he was doing uh, in in the in, in the United States, in which he was advocating for, in fact, leading the the uh, effort for for liberation and equality of 20 million black people in the United States. He thought about how, at that very moment, the majority of black people were not permitted to vote. The majority of black people were not permitted to get access to public facilities at that very moment, and that their protests were being met with tremendous resistance and, in fact, violence. The police dogs and the sheriff's sheriff's hoses and that sort of thing. And so he thought about it and he said, yes, I am an untouchable. I am an American untouchable. And every Negro in the United States is an untouchable. So he made that rec recognition. He came to that realization. He himself, Dr. Martin Luther King, made the connection between India and the hierarchy and, and historic uh, caste system of India and his experience in the United States. He, ex he recognized the connection that the, that uh, Dulles at the school that he was visiting had made even before he had arrived. So there's a long, long connection between the recognition of the parallels between these, uh, these two infrastructures, these two hierarchies, going back to, of course, even uh, Dr. Bimrao and Bedker, who recognized this as well decades before. And let's just take a moment to dig into this a little bit, because one of the things that your, that your writing does is really take us into the stories of, of um, Black people in the South in particular, and the way in which the dehumanization and the humiliation and the degradation by, as you term, the dominant caste was so complete. I mean, you told of stories of postcards from lynchings and all sorts of things that I think people are generally aware of, but maybe don't understand the, 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 the realness of it in a sense. And when you, when you humanize it and you personalize it, it really drives it home. I mean, tell us some of the stories and maybe they were familiar to you from your previous research, but, Tell us some of the stories that really stayed with you as you wrote the book and since. Well, let me say that when The Warmth of Other Suns came out, one of the immediate responses that I started to get and continue to get when people read it is that they will say to me, I had no idea. This is not just people around the world, but this is people people in the United States whose lives actually overlapped with the, with the experiences that are described in that book, things that African-Americans experienced up until the 1970s. I mean, these are, and of course, into the current era, but more intensely, formally, into the 1970s, where the laws were on the books. And just because the laws are in place does not, does not offer blanket protection, but the, this is when it was formally accepted. And so many people will say that they had no idea because they really truly didn't know and may, perhaps could not have known because these are not necessarily commonly taught. Now they are, the book is out, and so people are more aware, but before they hadn't been. And so there, there were such 
there is such a formal effort to keep the people apart. There's this, you know, in the book I write about these eight pillars of caste that were the characteristics that I compiled and recognized and began to collate to try to better understand how a caste system, how a hierarchy develops is justified and is maintained and enforced. And one of the central pillars is purity and pollution, the idea that the dominant caste must be remain separate and pure, lest it be polluted by those who are deemed beneath them, the, the subjugated caste. And so this r- runs through all of the caste systems that, that I w- was studying. And as an example in the United States, which might have been not as well known, is that there was a, there was an example, several examples about how the, the, the power of water was viewed as the element that had to, where people had to be kept separate at all costs. And one example is one where in the, in the city of Chicago, there actually was a beach where there was an invisible dividing line between the white water and the black water. And a young, a young man, a teenager was swimming and, you know, in the natural world in Lake Michigan, there was no line and he happened to swim into the water that was seen as the white water and he was stoned to death for having done so. And this is one out of many, many, many stories of the, of the enforcement and surveillance of the boundaries, which in some ways becomes a, a hallmark of a caste system, if, if nothing else, is that the maintaining of the boundaries between the various ranked groups at all costs in order to maintain the hierarchy that has been created. And that was one out of many, many examples that I, I came across in the book and, and wrote about in order to main, to describe this. There were, you know, there were separate ambulances for people, if you were white or if you were black. There were separate books, even the books, the school books for black children were kept separate from the school books of white children. That's how seriously the separation was was retained, that the books could not even be in the stored in the same place. It really, it's, it's shocking. And even hearing it now, I think, oh gosh, what a world, but it's not ancient history, is it? I mean, this is, this is only a few decades. It's in the, it's in the memory of people that are still alive. And one of, one of the other things that, I, that really kind of drove it home in, in the context of the United States, you write that even Hitler recorded his admiration for the uniquely American knack for maintaining an air of robust innocence in the wake of mass death. And this also spoke to how the Nazis admired the Americans almost for their caste system. And they sought to replicate the way that the Americans instilled caste into laws. I'm, I'm not sure that many people would know that. Was that something that surprised you in your research? And, and yeah, how has that been? I mean, that's a strange conversation, isn't it? No, I, I had I had no idea. And it wasn't even what I was looking for. I was looking for the ways in which Germany, as I indicated, had begun to atone, reckon with, and remember and educate their population about what had happened during the war. So I was not looking for this in any at all. I kind of stumbled across this much deeper interconnectedness that I hadn't realized. One of the things that I, I hadn't realized is that German eugenicists were in continuing dialogue with American eugenicists. And also, I might add British eugenicists in the years leading up to the Third Reich, that American eugenicists were writing bestsellers that uh, that German eugenicists that German eugenicists were consulting, but also that became bestsellers in Germany in the years leading up to the Third Reich. Now, I have to say and emphasize that the Nazis needed no one to teach them how to hate. They absolutely were not relying on, nor did they need, nor did they look to the United States to learn how to hate. But what they did was they actually sent researchers 
to the United States to study the Jim Crow laws that I've just referred to. They went, they sent researchers to study how uh, the uh, the Jim Crow South and and the country at, at large had managed to subjugate and subordinate African Americans. So they were looking at the anti-miscegenation laws, which would be um, in the, for example, in the Indian context, endogamy laws that kept that meant that each group. Could, could only intermarry with people such as themselves. So there were many, many uh, states in the United States, the majority of the American states had at one time or another anti-miscegenation laws, meaning laws against intermarriage between the, the races. Um, and also the, 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 the Nazis came to research the ways that, that, uh, the Jim Crow South had managed to segregate and keep the groups apart. And they were studying these things and they contemplated these things and actually debated these things as they were creating what would ultimately, ultimately become the Nuremberg Law. So I had no, no idea this was wrenching to discover these interconnectedness between these two cultures to see what the connection was. But also, you know, there's hopefulness in the fact that obviously the United States and the Allies were also the, you know, the reason why the, the Nazis were vanquished. So there's a, there's a, there's, it's a very complicated, complicated history. Yeah. And we'll, we'll come, I think, to, to the dismantling of the Nazi regime, because I think there is something to be learned there. But one of the things you've referenced, and I'm, and since we're talking to a UK audience, I think is really interesting is, not only, I think, other parallels for what you're talking about in caste for societies in general, but you know, the United States was a British colony. And so when you describe, I was reading caste, and as you describe this sort of American phenomenon, I kept thinking, well, well, what is the role of the British in this? If it was a British colony, was it not the British and other colonizers that kind of codified the concept of race? And how, you know, what, what is that relationship between the concept of America as a British colony and and the caste system that developed? You know, well, the thing about it is, is that the caste, the caste system that developed was not an overnight phenomenon. This was not, they didn't arrive on the shores the very first day uh, in colonial, what would be Virginia, and then start saying we were going to create one. In fact, the issue was survival. And we know that, you know, the horrific history of the vanquishing of the indigenous people upon arrival uh, that occurred over the, the decades and then decimated so many, the numbers, and then ultimately exiling, exiling the indigenous people from the caste system that emerged. I mean, ultimately forcing them off the land into what are now reservations. And so there's a very long, difficult history when it comes to that. But the, the caste system was one of, of, developing over time as the uh, British colonists began to first assure their own survival in a forbidding wilderness, which is what the, what the, the country was, the land was, and then bringing in the people, to uh, Africans to be enslaved, to build the country. And, and all of this going back for 400 years, back to 1619. And then by establishing a new world uh, in on a new, on a new hemisphere, creating a whole new system that then identified people on the basis of what they look like as opposed to what their innate gifts and talents might be. And, and so it was, a, it was, I want to emphasize that it was a form of, it was a slow building up as they had to make decisions about what was necessary in order for the colony to survive. This is not to, you know, this is to say that this is in some ways, many of these questions and laws that they created were laws that grew out of a sense of wanting to survive 
and having to be, in their view, pragmatic about what was necessary to make this work. It came at tremendous, tremendous cost. I mean, enslavement lasted for so long. It lasted for 246 years. It lasted for 12 generations. So people of African descent who are, who were descendants of enslavement, you know, experienced 246 years of enslavement, followed by another nearly 100 years of the, of what would be considered the Jim Crow caste system. And so the idea of the, you know, of African Americans being able to actually enter into the mainstream of American life legally after the civil rights movement is a fairly new phenomenon. Very, very, very new. It's going back within the lifespan of many, many people alive today. The civil rights legislation was from the 1960s. And so it, it, the, that was the beginning of African Americans being able to finally break free of the legal state sanctioned restrictions on them. And that's, that's what gets us to today. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of what is Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared and to create each one we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent but behind the scenes there's also a producer, a production team and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. I might turn to something a bit more personal, if I may, and, and talk about how, I mean, the, the, the system and the structure that you describe is so total in so many ways and you have named it how does cast play into your everyday life and and how has doing this work maybe changed that or impacted that well um in in a lot of ways because you know again the signifier of where you rank is based upon what you look like so just you know that you, you can enter into any space and you might you know everything might be perfectly wonderful and then there could be some in, in some disruption that you didn't see coming. And one of the examples that I include in the book is one where I was 
when I was uh, a journalist uh, working for the New York Times. Uh, and actually, the title was National Correspondent out of our Midwest Bureau. And I went to make, I made an appointment over the phone with someone that I was going to be interviewing. He was very excited to be interviewed by the New York Times, very excited, no problem whatsoever, made the appointment. Uh, when I got there to the, to, uh, to interview him, I arrived a little early and he, he wasn't there at the time. I'd been interviewing people all day long. And by that time, he, this was the last interview of the day. And when I got there, the establishment, there was no one there in the establishment except for one of the clerks. And she told me to, you know, to, to wait. Uh, he would be there any minute. And minutes later, the door opens, the front door opens, and this man walks in. He's very flustered. He's in a hurry because he's late for an appointment, the appointment with me. And he is very anxious about, you know, making sure that everything is right. So he he, he bristles in and uh, the clerk says, that's him, you know, go on over to him because that, that's him. And so I go over to him. I introduce myself to him and he says, I can't talk with you right now. I can't talk with you right now. I have a very, very important interview with the New York Times. I cannot talk with you right now. And you're the reporter from the New York Times. Yeah, he does not realize it. He does not recognize it. He does not accept it. He does not see it. He doesn't. He tells me, I can't talk with you right now because I'm waiting for a very important interview with the New York Times. And I said, I'm, I'm Isabel Wilkerson with the New York Times. I'm the one that made the appointment with you. He says, well, how do I know that? <laughs> Which is, when I, re- I read this story, and you were, I was like, how is this possible? You're literally saying, I'm the person you're looking for. And he's like, prove it. Like, what? <laughs> and so he said, well, so do you have a business card? And it just so happened that I had been interviewing all day. This is the end of the day, and I was out of business cards. And, and generally, it's not required anyway. But anyway, that was what he asked for. I didn't have a business card. He said, well, well, do you have some ID? Could I see some ID? And I said, I shouldn't have to show you my ID, but here's my driver's license. So I gave him the driver's license. And he said, you don't have anything with the New York Times on it? And I said, I happen not to have anything with the New York Times, but here we are, the two of us. I have an appointment with you. I know that I have an appointment with you. You know you have an appointment with with the New York Times. There's no one else here. We're already late into the interview. I should be interviewing you at this very moment. And this is, we should be having the interview right now. And he says, he said, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to ask you to leave because I have to get ready for this interview. She'll be here any minute. Actually mind-blowing. Like, mind And, but also an experience that many people who share the same cast will be really familiar with. And I think is shocking, maybe more so to folks who are in a dominant cast. The question that was burning in my mind as I was reading the book was, what cast is someone like me? So how, like in the kind of globalized context, I'm a lighter skinned Muslim woman born in Sudan who grew up in Australia and now lives in the UK. Like, does my cast follow me around or does it change depending on context? I love that. I actually have spoken with people who share some of the characteristics that you have. And say, for example, they are born in, say, Morocco. They are Muslim. They immigrate to, say, the United States, where they then fall into a particular group. Then if they go to, say, Dubai or someplace where there's a, a, a more a, a larger Muslim community, then they move in a different space. So it is some of it is I call it situational caste, situational hierarchy, depending upon where you happen to be. 
I would say that a lot of it, particularly in the Western perspective, is how you are perceived in the moment based upon your your phenotype, sadly, because people make assumptions mm-hmm. on the basis of what they can see. And that's the tragedy of caste to begin with is because you don't know anything about the person. You know absolutely nothing, but you know what you can see. And, and that, so the first assumption is based upon you know, a gender and perceived race, which is a social construct and is not real. In other words, where is your, where are you perceived to have been originally descended from? You know, is there, is there, are you of African descent would then sadly in the Western context be perceived as putting any of us in a subjugated position? I have had experiences when I'm outside of the United States where because this, the, these prevailing hierarchies have been exported to the rest of the world, people will still respond to me as being from the subjugated group, even without hearing anything about me. I actually had an experience in India where I was at the airport there and I was going through just, just, vis- you know, going through shop to shop while waiting for the flight. And I went into this one shop and the clerk there, upon entering, I, I didn't say anything. I wasn't speaking to anyone. I just entered a pretty large shop and the clerk came over to me immediately and began to follow me from place to place to place. If I made two steps to the, to the to forward, then he f- made two steps forward. If I made three steps to the right, he made three steps to the right. He didn't say anything. He just tracked me and shadowed me from the moment I entered. And it was very uncomfortable, although it's for, for, you know, for people who look like me, it's not uh, an unusual experience, sadly. But it was, it was especially, you know, it was just demoralizing to happen, you know, outside of a place that I'm accustomed to this happening. And then an interesting thing happened. While he was shadowing me and he was the, and following me, everything that I was doing, there was a British woman, a white woman, who got very angry and came over to him and said, I need help. You are not helping me. <laughs> Would you come and help me? I need help. I'm, I'm interested in this necklace and I need you to come and help me with this necklace. So while he was focused on trailing me, he was not doing what he should have been doing, which would have been helping someone else. And she got upset because she was being harmed by the assumptions that were being made about me. And all of this, I want to say, is not personal. I do not take this as personal. I take this as this is the encoding that we as human mm. beings have received about the artificial, arbitrary ranking of who, of, of value among human beings in the world that we live in. I don't, I don't uh, cast, I don't cast blame or, or, sh- I, in fact, the, the beauty of the, of the focusing on structure takes us away from the emotion laden language that we may be accustomed to. In other words, it's not about feelings and emotions. It's not about guilt and blame and shame. It's about what is it that human beings do when they've received messaging about who fits where, who's to be expected where, all the assumptions and stereotypes. And these assumptions and stereotypes can block and impede and Mm. disrupt ordinary interactions. And actually, if you multiply that times millions of people who may experience this at any given time or act upon these impulses at any given time, these autonomic subconscious impulses, then you can see how it disrupts um, interactions. Yeah. It hurts businesses. It, it hurts, you know, communities and, and ultimately entire societies when you multiply at times millions of transactions or interactions in a given day and any, in a given society. This, in this case, an actual purchase was being threatened 
because he was focused on someone. The other thing I would add is that, you know, for someone who looks like me to make it all the way to India means that there have to be some level of resources, some little level of resourcefulness, um, some level of planning. You know, I don't, someone like me does not just sort of just pop in the middle of, of, of a country across the ocean, wherever it may be. So, you know, that what I'm saying is that these impulses and this coding is so deeply embedded that it actually operates with with all inputs to the contrary, all evidence to the contrary seems to override uh, the impulse to to designate and to rank in spite of all Mm. information to the contrary. This is it's a very structural thing. And you've just made that point. And so I'm curious about how the other structures that we often talk about when it comes to society play with caste. So things like gender and class, which I think are also really important kind of hierarchies of domination and subordination. How does that come into the concept of, of caste? Absolutely true. And, and as you mentioned, your own multiple identities and origins, that is where you get these points of intersection that can move you up or move you down, depending upon what the factors. I mean, there could be a long, a long, you know, flow chart that would pull in all the possible characteristics an individual might have and then try to place them in the hierarchy. And I'm dealing with the, the bipolar hierarchy in the United States uh, that, that emerged out of colonial Virginia. But but the, to your point, and I want to make sure I get your point, your question was exactly was. Well, how do things like gender and class intersect and maybe muddy the waters a little bit? Because I know that you make the point that say somebody might choose the dominant caste sort of going against their self-interest, but maybe being working class might change that. Or maybe, you know, a black person who is middle to upper middle class might vote differently or so on. Like, do the do the sort of allegiances that people have to caste change with, with other factors? Well, I mean, it, it certainly can, but I want to say something about class because I think that was your the underlying question that you had. So I describe caste as the bones, race as the skin, and then class the third rail on the three-legged uh, stool of identity would is the the clothing the accent the diction the education the things that we can change about ourselves to move up or down in in how we're perceived and how we move about and navigate in a caste system and so i i one way of looking at it is if you can act your way out of it it's class if you cannot act your way out of it it's caste if you think about Pygmalion, you know, where they were actually able to take Eliza Doolittle and take someone who would be lower in class and literally transform her into an upper caste or upper class person. But she first would have to be have the same basic look, inherited look of someone who would be viewed as potentially, you know, upper upper class to begin with. And and you also I think that, that there is a there was a recent story a few months ago about what had happened to the the editor of British Vogue who walked into his building, clearly one of the best dressed and best presented people on the planet, by definition. He walked into his own building and was told to use the freight elevator, uh, the, the freight lift, his own building. And that is where you can reach the highest levels of one's uh, of, of, of class status in one's society in terms of success and achievement and in an instant can be reminded or positioned mm. or surveilled or policed into a space of that would be the subjugated lowest lowest caste. 
And so this is this is how it operates. That there, it's often said that you know that that again, you 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 it, you can you are born to a particular uh, uh, ranking, but you you do not have to remain there in terms of how you perceive yourself. The issue is how other people perceive you and may create these boundaries mm. over you. Mm. One of the things that you you're keen to point out in the book is that the Germans made it a project to dismantle the caste systems that the Nazis created. So tell us a little bit about that and what other societies like the US or even the UK can learn from from that example. Well, I mean, one of the things that's happened since World War Two is this attempt to reckon with, understand, learn and educate the population about what truly happened. The idea of everyone getting on the same page about what about the essential facts, the essential experience and how the country came to that point. And so one of the things that Germany has done and done so effectively is that they have they have converted the spaces of such horror, you know, the Nazi headquarters, various headquarters for the various departments that they had. They've converted those buildings into spaces of education. They've converted them into museums and, and into spaces of learning so that, that they, and also have converted them into spaces that now honor those who perished under the Nazi reign. They have, they have devoted an entire massive section in the middle of Berlin to the to the to a monument a memorial to those who perished in the holocaust and one of the the central i think mean, messages of that memorial is that there 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 is no explanation that there's no there's no description it's just there and the power of that is that it's a reminder that the country has worked very hard to make sure everyone knows the history so that there's not there's not a need to have an explanation of what happened because everyone now knows it was also built uh, and designed by um, an, an architect, an American architect of Jewish ancestry. And so that was powerful as well. And so the decision was made that there was, there needs to be said nothing except that the, the monument itself, the memorial itself does the speaking because people have been educated to know the history to begin with. And I think that the effort of myself and many other historians in this moment that, that we happen to be in is to attempt to bring in an awareness of what had happened. I often describe myself as like a structural inspector of the building, an old house. I describe the United States as an old house. Probably any any country could be viewed as an old house. And when you have an old house, the work is never done. There's always something that has yet to be done. As soon as you fix one thing, then something else is popping up. And so you don't expect the work to be done because you have an old house and you know you'll have to be inspecting it constantly. And the idea is to shed light and to illuminate those spaces that we otherwise would not know. You know, after rain, you don't want to go into the basement. You don't want to think about what is, you know, what is there awaiting you. But whatever is there is not going to go away just because you don't look at it. In fact, whatever is there will only get worse if you don't look at it. This, you know, I think when you have an old house, it calls upon everyone to to recognize the, the aspects of the house, to know their house well in order to be able to keep it in the best shape that you can. It's not going to go away because you're not, you don't want to look at it and confront it. It's something my therapist has said to me, but also useful for advice for us all. So I'm going to turn now to questions. And Catherine asks, read the New York Times reporting story. Did the interview ever take place? Did he apologize? And somebody else also asked, what on earth did your editor say when you told them? <laughs> No, it never did because I was on deadline and I, you know, that was the chance. I mean, I needed to get back and write the story. I mean, I, I, 
you know, didn't include him. You know, the thing is, it was part of a larger story in which there were many other people that I'd interviewed. I was really hoping to interview him and he was very excited to be interviewed, but he didn't get interviewed. And I, I never heard anything it was, I had to move on to the next story. And, you know, this was one of those things that happened. And again, this is, these are the things that I mentioned in the book are not the, even the most, these are not the worst things that have ever happened to me. They're not even necessarily the most pointed things that have happened to me. They're just things that seemed to be, I, I, I didn't really wasn't seeking to have myself in this book anyway, but these were examples that seemed to be, I thought could be of use for readers to see how this happens on an, on a daily kind of everyday, the everyday ordinariness of it and how it can impact us. It also is one that is so it's, it's kind of, it's so unexpected then it, and it threw me and I think it might, it might the, the same reaction. I, the goal is to have the readers have a, a similar kind of reaction. You're just kind of scratching your head. Where does this come from and why? So, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. A question that I think many people in the UK can also relate to is why do you think so many Americans were not taught po- properly about American history as it relates to racial conflict and slavery? And this person says, I feel like Black Lives Matter has really highlighted so much history that we never knew. I absolutely agree. I mean, I think, it, you know, it's a hard history. It's hard to to look into one's own background. I mean, you, you mentioned, you know, therapy, or you mentioned when I, one example that I have is uh, in the book is of going to the doctor, you know, you, when you go to the doctor, the very first thing that they will do in the office, at least my experience in our experiences in the United States is that the first thing the doctor will do is hand you this clipboard and you have to fill out all these forms before the doctor will even see you. And they're asking about your history, but they're also asking about, your parents' history and even your grandparents' history going before that. And so the goal is to, the the doctor will not even see you because uh, until they know your history, because that is the foundation for understanding what you're going through now. And so if you, if you think about, you know, about the, a country as being sort of the body of the people and the need to know what has happened to that body, not just the current one, but the ones going before. And that allows us to, to recognize how important it is to know what's happened before. But a lot of times, you know, if you, again, you may not want to get that, that final, the result of the, of the x-ray that has that has been done. You may not want to know what it is that's there, but whatever's there is not going to go away just because you haven't looked at it. And so I view that that is one of the, the, the reasons why we, you know, people don't know as much of the history as we otherwise might, because it's, it can be difficult and it's hard to look at that. I think that, I think that on both sides of the Atlantic, we have seen a growing awareness. I view it as the cusp of an awakening to what has happened before. And I look at what happened in Bristol a, a couple of months ago where people there, you know, a large protesters, large group of protesters came and removed that statue and hurled it into the river. I mean, this was a, once people become aware, if you don't know, one of the things why I have, I give people benefit of the doubt. I give all of us benefit of the doubt because if you don't know, then you can't act. There's nothing that can be expected of you truly if you do not know. The question is, what do you do when you do become aware of it? What do you do when you when you have now been given or exposed to truths that you might not have otherwise known? And I think that the response from around the world upon awareness of what has happened even if it were centuries ago and realizing how we have we have yet to reconcile some of this, I think it's raised awareness and led to what I hope is the cusp of an awakening, especially for people who may not have had to deal with this on a day-to-day basis, but may be affected by it, even though they may not know, just like that basement. We have a lot of questions about the kind of the future 
And I guess one of the underlying questions, you know, are there examples of where caste has been altered or eliminated? And and this sort of also ties into another question that I didn't get the chance to ask, but wondered if if this is about human behavior, if domination and subjugation are part of human nature, how do we get to a society that is free from caste? I, you know, there, there, it cannot be said actually, in in my opinion, that 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 we know of cases where it has actually been t- truly vanquished. I would love to be able to think that it's been truly, absolutely, without question vanquished because of the interconnectedness of human beings. I mean, as I said, I mean, you can, you know, you move about the world. We've received these inputs. We've received them from, you know, from the society at large, from commercials and from, you know, sitcoms and from billboards of who is valued in a society and who may not be valued in a society. And I think that that's what makes it harder. But, you know, when you look at, you know, and I looked more more intensely at these three countries, but I did not, uh, I, I was not presenting myself as being, as knowing about all manifestations of caste in every single country where it's ever existed. I preferred to and chose to go deep rather than wide. If I'd gone any wider, I would still be, I'd be working on this for the next 20 years. <laughs> so that, that was not going to be possible. But what I would say is that if it can be created by human beings, by man, then it, then it can, I believe and I trust and have faith that it can be dismantled, that these hierarchies that actually hold all of us back, even though we may not be aware of it, can be dismantled. But they can't be dismantled unless you can see them to begin with. You have to be able to see a problem in order to solve a problem. And and that's why I'm, you know, trying to shed light here. I'm trying to, you know, to shine a light uh, on what we may not otherwise be able to see, holding up an x-ray so that we can then look and diagnose it and see what can be done. And And the approach to uh, addressing this will take everyone because everyone is affected by it. Everyone has has absorbed whatever the encoding is, and it will take everyone, the work of everyone in order to rise above it, to transcend it in order to heal. It will take everyone. Mm, Yes. And I think we've got another question. I I, I want to give that point a bit of space and and underline that, I think, because that is something that you come to in your epilogue is that this is this is something that we all have to be a part of. And you talk about radical empathy, which I, you know, when everyone buys your book, I encourage them to to take to heart. But we, we're almost running out of time. So I want to get through quite a few more questions if we can. And somebody, somebody has asked, does caste help us understand the rise and potential fall of Donald Trump? And I know that you've talked about the backlash when the dominant caste is challenged. So is yet yeah, like, would you say that caste is a, is a framework to understanding perhaps what what is going on with Donald Trump? Well, the, the thing is, through, through throughout American history, there have been moments where the the uh, there are there are moments of great progress, followed sometimes by resistance and even backlash, and then things going backward, going toward a point of contention and conflict to such a degree that then there is a moving forward. This, there's always a backward motion and then a forward motion that's characteristic of very likely almost any society, but I'm only, I'm speaking of, of America, of the United States more particularly. And so the, the, the current situation is one that has been building for quite some time. And around 12 years ago, uh, there was a, an important report that came out of the census that indicated that the United States by 2042 would move into a demographic configuration that the country has never known. And that would be that for the first time in American history, 
the white majority would no longer be the majority in the United States. And this predates the, the current administration. This is something that came out uh, more than 12 years ago. And that put into motion a tremendous amount of uncertainty for many, many people. And not just people who would be, who would be viewed as being dominant caste. It's a whole different way of even trying to imagine what the country would look like without the historic majority as we have known it to be, going back to colonial times. And so this raises questions about, you know, what happens when there is not the numerical majority that has always been there in a country that prides itself and has, and, and is known as a, a beacon of democracy throughout the world as a, as a democracy that's built upon, you know, the majority rule. So what happens when the majority changes? What happens when uh, people who do not look like the majority, historic majority, then are now numerically in the majority, even though they may come from many different backgrounds? And so this is an existential question for the country. This is a moment of, of should be, or hopefully will be a moment of deep reflection to imagine, to reimagine what it American, means. what it means to be in community in a different configuration. And so all of this is to me bound up in this current moment. Do you think the choice of Kamala Harris, Kamala Harris as Joe Biden's running mate, is a further helping of fracturing the caste system in the US? Well, it certainly is a is a, a historic moment because, you know, it, it, you know, she brings in her origins, in her lineage, these these multiple strains of identity, these points of intersection in her bio, in her biography, you know, as the the daughter of an immigrant from India and an immigrant from Jamaica who meet in the United States, marry, and then this is the daughter of of migrations, the daughter of different cultures and societies coming together in one person, and so, you know, there is the potential for a tremendous bridge building within her own life story alone as she goes out to speak in the next few weeks and months. And so it'll be really very enlightening to see, you know, how she is received, how she is seen, and and if the potential that, that ensues from her own biography, you know, reaches fruition and people can, can see and hear. So I've got time for, I'm going to take two more questions. One is from Stephen Portlock, who says, to me, the word cast suggests disability. Do you see any connection there? I think that I, I mean, I can see how if, if you're in a uh, subjugated, if you're in the subjugated group, then it does affix, it turns a neutral trait, neutral traits, whatever they may be, into a disability, because then you, it, it should be neutral, and it should be meaningless, but suddenly it's accorded negativity, it's accorded a value that's devalued, just because you know you have nothing to do with it. I mean, again, the, the focus of, of this work is to say that none of us chose where we would be in the hierarchy, the, the embedded inherent hierarchy in whichever society we're born in. We are born to our families and then, you know, we're all innocent children. And then as we grow up and come into awareness, we, we become, uh, we, we, we learn that just because of what we look like, we are assumed to be a certain way. We're assumed to be intelligent or not intelligent. We're assumed to be resourceful or not resourceful. We're assumed to be hardworking or lazy, whatever it may be. And so we, we absorb these things. And even though we did not wish to, for them to be there, this is what we discover. I don't know if that's answering the question, but I, I I just want to emphasize that these are not choices that each of us make when you're when you're born into a hierarchy. But I think that we each have a choice each day as to whether we choose to adhere to these embedded messages. Once you become aware of the messaging, then you can begin to work to recognize that the need to 
to uh, to see the common humanity in all of us and to see that these are man-made divisions. These are not real. They were created for the purpose of dividing and, and creating hierarchy. And if we if we refuse to see those and, and choose to see us see one another as individuals, as the unique and beautiful and amazing individuals that that we all are, then that's that's the one of the steps that someone can take toward dismantling in our everyday life every single day. This is a challenge that we could take on for ourselves. We, could, as individuals, we may not be able to dismantle hierarchies in globally, but we can all do something every day in our own lives to resist the embedded hierarchies and the messaging that we all receive. Mm, I love that, and I'm going to end on this, which is when Oprah says that your book is required reading. Who is the first person that you call to share that news? <laughs> It happened to be that my my stepdaughter was actually visiting with me, and we both just you know both screamed. <laughs> what you can say? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that seems like the appropriate response, Isabel Wilkerson. Thank you so much. We've had so many great questions. This book has so much packed into it. I think it will really shape the way that people think about um, the concept of class uh, of caste and the lines that divide us. Thank you so much. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.